This is a text that I've taught on I don't know how many times, but it's in 1 John chapter 3, and I invite you to turn there with me. 1 John, actually we'll start at the end of uh, chapter 2. I told you yesterday I teach in reverse, <laughs> and uh, that's a habit that I need to reverse, but I've, now it's too late. I have always resisted the idea of having a favorite passage in the Bible. It seems to me that all of Scripture is equally inspired by God. Every word that God says is true and important to everything that he says. But this is one passage over the years that has never let go of me. This is a passage that stirs my heart to hope brings me almost to the point of tears every time that I consider it. And it is a passage that will elevate you to great heights, cheer your darkest moments, and reinforce in your heart, both corporately and individually, that the church triumphs in the end. We're gonna start at John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, and read down through verse 3. He says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now much of the epistle of 1 John is devoted to the area of a believer and his practical righteousness. We won't take the time to examine all of those passages. You can read the text in 15 minutes and the word righteousness jumps out all over the place. Righteousness being one of the marks of a true believer. And so John is teaching us that that practical righteousness is, is, is one of the marks of true salvation. And in verse 29, there at the end, he says that it is an inevitable result of regeneration, of being born again. Look at it there again. He says, if, if you know that he is righteous, if we know that Christ is righteous, then you know that everyone who practices that kind of righteousness is born of him. That when, when God saves you, he doesn't simply declare you righteous in Christ. At that moment of your conversion, he also causes you to be born again. You are made new. You are regenerated so that you have become a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. 
And the God who gives birth to you, the Spirit who gives birth to you and new life, gives a life that is like his own. And as a result of that, having replaced the prior deadness of your heart with new life in Christ, it's obvious that that new life will bear fruit in one manner or another. The, the logic of it all is utterly compelling. And so John here is talking about the righteous life of one who has been born again. Now, watch this. As he talks about the righteous life of a believer in this window of time that we have on earth, he now turns to set it in the context of what you could say colloquially, the big picture. The, the big picture of salvation, the big picture of God's purpose in our lives and his purpose in the church. It is said in the context of God's ultimate plan for the consummation of the ages. Your individual salvation and the righteous fruit that that produces, however flawed it may be in you and certainly and in me, it is connected to the broader program of God that he is working out and that is what John is saying. He sets our individual lives and our individual sanctification in the bigger picture of regeneration and the ultimate consummation of the plan of God. And so I just want to show you three things from the next three verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And to just give you what I would have you do or what I would have and ask the Spirit of God to do in your heart is to work deeply in your heart a love for these things that we are going to see, that they would stabilize you, that they would encourage you, that they would give you a, a clarity of, of, of perception about the nature of reality. I was out with Travis in Colorado uh, a few months ago. The de exact date slips my mind for the moment, but that's okay. And he took us up to one of the highest peaks west of, of Denver. And the, and the view up there, just spectacular. And just this, this panorama where you can see for hundreds of miles from you know, 12,000, 13,000 feet, however high up we were. It's cold up there. <laughs> but man, what you can see from the heights this is a passage that takes us up to the high point and lets us see the heights. And that's what I want to encourage your hearts with today. First of all, in the first verse, I want you to, to see our, our great position in Christ. Our great position in Christ. And if I was going to title this message, I've used so many different titles that it's, I don't even know what it is. But, uh, and if I don't know, how are you gonna know, right? But uh, I think about this passage in the terms of that will be the day. That will be the day. That'll be the day. That'll be the glorious day. That's the longing of every believing heart when we come to understand it. And John starts by causing us to reflect on our great position in Christ. Look how he reflects on the fact that we are born of God in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, 
see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. That opening term could be translated behold and behold what manner of love and it's, it's a word that implies in astonishment at the reality. He says, behold, look at what I am saying here and contemplate the majesty and the glory of what is being said. And what is it that causes such wonder and astonishment in the apostle? I mean, this is the Apostle John writing near the end of his life and near the close of the apostolic age. Beloved, he had, he had been with Christ. He had seen Christ resurrected. He had been teaching and, and leading the church for 60 years by this point of time. And, you know, and he's in his late 80s, early 90s by now. And after all of that time, and at the end of, toward the end of his life, it was still as fresh and vibrant and compelling to him now as it had ever been. So that he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes and he tells his leader, behold, look at this. Look at the majesty of the reality of our great position. And what is it that causes such wonder and astonishment? It's that we should be called children of God. That those of us who were born into sin, those of us that practiced sin, those of us that were under the domination of the devil, that rightly deserved the wrath of God, that could do nothing to save ourselves, that had no claim to, no claim on being adopted by God, that we were like that, and now here we are enjoying the status of children of God. And because of the, of the, work of God, the grace of God, the gift of God in adopting us into his family, and in the more immediate context of having been born by the Spirit, understand that if you are a Christian, you share in the very nature of God because he has imparted his life to you. The Spirit of God indwells you. And that means that you belong, as a Christian, you belong to the divine family. You share his nature through the Holy Spirit. Turn back to just, just one book, to the letter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse... He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises 
so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Of course, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Beloved, if you are in Christ, God has made you someone new than what you were before. There was, a, there was an essential change that was worked in your heart that makes the fruit of salvation inevitable. You are essentially, by very essence, different from what you were as an unsaved person. And think about it this way in the context of this family imagery, this family metaphor that John uses. My, my children, my six children and three grandchildren, they have a unique relationship with me that no one else shares. They, they share my very life. They, they, my blood runs in their veins. And as a result of that, they are the special objects of my love my protection, and my provision. They have something that doesn't belong to anyone else in relationship to me. Well, that's the relationship that you and I enjoy with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are the special objects of his love. There is a special love that God has for his elect. There is a special love that Christ bestowed on those for whom he died. There is a special love from the Spirit who, who applied that redemption to our hearts that is not given to the sons of Adam, that is not given to the non-elect, that is not given to the unsaved. And that, is, that means that we have, this, we have this proximity, we have this intimacy, we have this union with the living God that is a, that is a privilege and a place of, of unspeakable blessing. And to be the object of his love, to be the object of his care, to know that we were in the mind of God, we were the object of his choice before the foundation of the world. And as I like to say often, is that in a, in a unique way, somehow in a way that I don't profess to understand, if you are in Christ, somehow he was thinking about you on the cross because he died for your sins in particular. He died as a direct substitute for you. It wasn't just a blob of redemption that he was working out. He was dying to save his people. And he died for each one of our sins, so much so that the Apostle Paul could say in Galatians chapter 2, he loved me and gave himself up for me. First person, singular. That's astonishing. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we would be called the children of God. And he goes on, and it's, it's very clear and abrupt and direct in the Greek text in chapter 3 verse 1 look back there with me he said that we should be called children of God and we are it's not just that the label is applied to us the reality is there we belong to the family of God 
and he will never cast us away. It is impossible to measure the, the illimitable love and grace and patience and mercy and kindness that God has showed to us in Christ. Now there's a consequence to that. Look, looking there in verse one again, there's a consequence to that that is, that is unpleasant and sad in, for a time. He says there at the end of verse one, for this reason the world does not know us. The world does not know us because we belong to a different family than they do. We, there is an, they, they do not have the spirit that we do. They're not the objects of the, the redeeming love of God like we are. And, and, you, and that has a lot of immense consequences. The unsaved man does not share the values of the kingdom of God. He does not love Christ like we do. He does not have the spirit indwelling him. We're living in different worlds and different realms even as we walk side by side with them. And so John says it's no wonder that they don't understand us. It's no wonder that, that, that we seem like, like fools to them. They have, no, they have no possibility of rightly understanding it. And so it is no wonder that Christians like you and like me are so often the object of ridicule, scorn, and persecution. Jesus told us to expect that. You look at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12, blessed are you when men persecute you and lie about you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Look over at the Gospel of John, chapter 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. Just a personal preference when I when I preach, I like for people to turn and see the text for themselves. I like you to see it with your own eyes. In verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now let me say a pastoral word and really put on my pastoral hat here. Because I, in a room of this size, there's no doubt that some of you who are true believers You've been rejected by family. You've been rejected by friends. Maybe it's cost you personally to maintain your testimony for Christ. And when in that position, I just want to encourage you that when you're rejected on account of Christ, to step back and, and set aside the broken earthly relationship for a time and understand the spiritual reality that that represents 
your unsaved friends, your unsaved loved ones reject you because they have rejected Christ. And if you're scorned by family or friends, understand that reality and, and, and go further than that and lay hold of the comfort that is in the midst of that sorrow for you. In the midst of that sorrow, the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit is as it were speaking to your heart through his word and saying it is because of Christ that this has happened and and it 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 lets you identify with him more with his suffering and it gives you an assurance of 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 the reality of his love and that you truly belong to him and and look I don't I don't mind telling you for decades now for decades now, I have family that won't talk to me because of my testimony to Christ. They've made it plain that they want nothing to do with me. This is a bit of extended family, not immediate family. And I, I, I gotta tell you, I grieve over it to this day. I haven't talked to them for 25 years maybe. I wrote to them, I said, you know, if you want to, you know, I understand that you've not wanted to see me, but I would still love to see you, just, but I'm not gonna bother you about it. Just let me know, and if I don't hear back from you, I'll just assume that you don't want to, to hear from me, and, and that's okay, I'm still gonna love you. Didn't hear back, <laughs> didn't hear back. And on a human level, it, it saddens me and while you may grieve over your lost relationships on a human level, do this. Look up. Look up to heaven. Look to Christ with your mind's eye and see the approval of your heavenly Father. The world doesn't know you. The world doesn't want you because it doesn't know Christ. It doesn't want Christ. And this is a small price, beloved, this is a small price for us to pay in a loss of human relationship if we might gain Christ and gain our heavenly reward. And so, if we, so following the flow of the text here, God has loved you and brought you into his family. And, and look, we walk through life and we enjoy the intimacy and the, the wonder of that. And you know, if that was all that there was to being a Christian, I'm speaking like a fool. If that was all, but if that's all that there was to being a Christian, and we could walk through this life being children of our Heavenly Father and enjoying that kind of intimacy with Him, and I'm speaking like a fool here, and if we simply cease to exist, at the end of our lives, and there was no future hope, we would still have reason to praise God all the days of our lives. We would still spend our earthly days praising the Father because just walking through this life with his presence and his love is far more blessing than anything that we ever deserved. And we cherish that earthly, present intimacy with him. We cherish the truth of Scripture and, and, and you know, this is our lifeblood. And that earthly aspect of walking with Christ, beloved, 
is far more than any of us deserve. And, exact, and in truth, it is the reverse of everything that we do deserve. We have received grace where we deserved wrath. We have received kindness where we deserved judgment. And to be in the family of God, even for a period of earthly time, is something far more than we could have imagined. I, and, and John wants us to dwell on that, and that's why he says, behold, and he, he goes and speaks to this at length that we wouldn't rush through the, re, the present reality of our great position. But, but, there is something even more, something even better, something that surpasses the richness of your great position in Christ. And there is something coming, something triumphant that will make you and me forget the richness of all of these blessings on earth. And that second aspect that is coming, you could just say, for if you're taking notes, our great hope. Our great hope. As we move into verse 2, understand what John is doing here in the flow of his letter. He is going to develop and expand upon the thought that we are children of God. And you can see that so clearly in verse 2 where he says, Beloved, sometime, if you haven't ever noticed this in 1 John, go, go through the, the entire epistle and just look for the terms of affection with which he addresses his readers. My little children, beloved, brethren. And, and, and this, is a, this is a letter that is wrongly, in my, you know, in my humble judgment, it, that is sometimes wrongly described as a black and white letter and it's, you know, it's almost described as something stern because John is making such sharp contrast between the world and the Christian, between darkness and light, and on it goes. But that's an entirely wrong way to understand the spirit of this letter. John is writing as, as an apostle, but he's writing as a pastor to people that he loves. And so he's addressing them in love to encourage them. And at this very crucial juncture, as he's talking about us being children of God, that spills out of his apostolic pastoral heart again when he says, beloved. You are, you, and it's, he, they're beloved by God and they're beloved by the apostle. And there's a sense that every true pastor, any true pastor, somehow has a sense of that for the people that are uniquely given to him as a stewardship. You can't preach and minister to people year after year after year without developing a bond of, of affection for them. That's for the pastor's conference, I guess. But he's developing the thought of being children of God. Verse 2, look at it there with me. Beloved, now we are children of God. Yes, we are children, he says, but he says the, he goes on and, and makes clear that the full greatness of that position in Christ we have not yet realized, we have not yet received, it has not yet been given to us. Beloved, here today, 
There is more for you and me to come as being a Christian, and it goes exceedingly abundantly beyond what you can ask or think. John says, now we are children of God, but our present position, watch this, listen closely, this is an important transition in the thought, Our present position is only a down payment on greater things to come. There is a greater glory to come that will dwarf our present dignity. And so what he does here in verse 2 is he adds to our present blessing, our present position that we are children of God, with the word and. And, look at it there in the middle of verse 2. Now we are children of God and. You mean to tell me that there's more than this? You're going to add to our great position with something else? How could that possibly be? But John explains there is more to our position, there is more to the blessing of being in Christ than simply being children of God in this life. And he leaves the world behind. He pivots entirely away from the animosity of the world and he turns to speak to believers and he says, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Future tense, get this, future tense tense there is more to come there is something better we will be changed and we don't we just don't know all that that entails it's a great encouragement that even the apostle confesses his ignorance on the 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 full magnificence of what he is speaking he says it has not appeared as yet what we will be says says there's more to it and You know, we don't know the fullness of it. Even I don't as an apostle. But while we don't know the fullness, there is something that we do know for certain. Look back at chapter 3, verse 2. He doesn't dwell on what we don't know and how I would love love to have a, a, a speaking opportunity before classic dispensational pastors and say, let's not focus on what we don't know and speculate according to today's headlines. Let's focus on what we do know. That's what John focuses on. And he says, we know this. We know that, that introduce that, the word that, introducing the content of what we do know. And he says, we know this, that when he appears, we will be like him. Again, future tense. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, we need to pause here for a moment and not be in a hurry to realize that we are, we, John has just taken us into a completely different realm of thought. This is a staggering truth that takes our thoughts and desires to a realm far beyond earth. It takes our thoughts to a heavenly realm that is reserved for the children of God and for them alone. Jesus Christ Jesus Christ, the crucified, 
and risen Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, full deity dwelling in full humanity, that Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear in the world one day with great power and with great glory. We don't know when he will appear, but we know for certain that it is coming. And when he comes, something's going to happen for you and me. When he comes, those of us that are in Christ, we are going to see him with our own vision and with our eyes. And when we see him, in resurrected bodily glory. When we see him, we will somehow be transformed into his likeness. We will share his holiness and some manner of his resurrected glory. We will not become exactly like him because we will not become God but, but the, 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 the characteristics of resurrection glory are going to belong to us. We will share in his holiness. We will be made perfect. Look over at John chapter 17, the gospel of John chapter 17. In verse 24, as Jesus is praying on the eve of his crucifixion, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You can see in John's gospel the, the theme being developed of seeing Christ and seeing him in his glory and you can see it in, uh, in his book also of Revelation at the end. Go to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. This is, this is, just, this is just rapturous in its magnificence. This is the highest pinnacle that human thought can go to is to contemplate these very truths in verse 3 of chapter 22, it says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We who once were creatures of sin and creatures of wrath are somehow going to see the, the, the face of Christ in resurrected glory. And, we, and it's not going to be the kind of, it's not going to be in fear, it's going to be in acceptance and in love as, as those who belong to him, those that he loved and gave himself up for. That's what, that's what lies ahead for you and me in Christ. We are going to look into the face of the eternal Son of God and the, the countenance with which he views us, the countenance which we will see will be one of love and acceptance and union.
in a way that, that, that we belong there. Just as my children belong with me, you know, not just like it, in a far, far greater sense, we will see Christ in that manner. Going back to chapter 3 of 1 John, John says, we know this. He is describing an assured confidence. Your likeness to the Lord will be a likeness to his glorified being. You will share in his resurrection. I'm sorry. My tongue can't even express. My tongue literally can't express the glories of this. You will somehow share in his resurrected perfection, Christian brother, Christian sister, in Christ, this is your destiny. This is the outcome of it all. God will bless you in glory beyond anything that you can anticipate. I ask you, is he a great and merciful God? Has he not given you a great salvation? I think about it this way sometimes, and again, I speak as a complete and utter fool with what I'm about to say, but to try to, to convey something, some kind of faded, distant sense of how magnificent this is going to be, and thinking about my own utter wretched, undeserving, of such a position and such a destiny and, and the, 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 utter, the utter magnificence of seeing Christ face to face. I speak as a fool, but I mean what I'm about to say. Seeing his face is, is, going to, is such an inestimable privilege. It is going to be so magnificent, so glorious, so transcendent that I've often thought, I've often thought that if I, if, I, if, if, if I go to heaven and I just see his face for just that moment and it's the culmination of everything that I've lived for and everything that I've preached for and the culmination of everything that he's done for me to see his face in glory. If I just saw it for a moment and then I was banished to a remote corner of heaven, I'd be completely happy. Because I would, I, would, I would sit down, I picture sitting down, and for the rest of eternity, just saying to myself, I saw him, I saw him, it was real. And if that's all that heaven had, if that's all that heaven had, that would be an eternal blessing. To see the eternal Son of God, that's an eternal blessing that would ravish my soul forever. If there was nothing else to heaven but that. Now listen, beloved, we have to grasp the magnificence of this to, to better appreciate our great position in Christ. Remember that you were a lost sinner separated from him. Think now even on your present Christian life, to say nothing of mine. 
Even now, knowing something of these realities and truths, even now, isn't it true? Don't we sadly have to agree with one another that we sometimes fall into a spirit of prayerlessness, ingratitude, grumbling, outright sinfulness? Why is God so good to us? that even as his children we can be like that and yet in his, his unspeakable grace and kindness and mercy he has appointed this destiny to us in spite of ourselves. Why is he so good to us? Well, it's not for anything in us, is it? It's because of everything that's in him. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. My son and my grandson are named after Martin Lloyd-Jones to give you a sense of how much that man means to me and his ministry. But Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, speaking about chapter three, verse two. He says, do you know that you are destined to see him as he is? Blessed, glorious vision to see the Son of God in all his glory as he is face to face. You standing and looking at him and enjoying him for all eternity. It is only then that we will begin to understand what he did for us, the price he paid, the cost of our salvation. Oh, let us hold on to this. Shame on us forever grumbling. Shame on us forever saying that the Christian life is too hard. Shame on us forever half-heartedly worshiping, praising, and loving Christ and his glory. You and I are destined for that vision glorious. We shall see him as he is face to face. End quote. I want that day to come. I don't even want to leave the mental realm of what we are discussing about that glory. But that's not the conclusion that John leads us to. John, having brought us face to face with Christ, leads us to consider the impact that this has on our lives today. And it leads us to point number three, our glad response our glad response in verse three. He says, and everyone that has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The fact that the church is triumphant in the end has a present impact on our sanctification today. And the, 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 the essence of what he is saying is this. You and I should be so overwhelmed with God's plan for our futures that we pursue holiness today. He says everyone that has this hope purifies himself. No exceptions. That's the way that it works. That's a true mark of being born again. And that word hope, as you know, speaks not of, of something that may or may not happen, but you kind of hope that it does. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that God will certainly keep his promise. And so, if you believe, if you are in Christ, 
and you believe scripture and you believe that this ultimate destiny belongs to you, there is something that you do in response to it. Being confident that Christ is going to return for you and transform you into his likeness motivates you to become more like him today, to not wait, but to grow in grace and to grow in sanctification now. What John is saying is that people that understand this will pursue spiritual purity. It it emphasizes an inward purity that results in a progressively greater freedom from sin. You and I would be marked by confession of sin, resisting temptation, and, and, and living out externally before man a righteous life. That's the mark of one who has this hope. When scripture spe- inevitably, when Scripture speaks about future events, it brings, us, it brings us back to its impact on our sanctification. And that gives us the instruction we need for how we get ready for the return, how we, how we prepare. You know, the, especially you ladies that, that are homemakers and you, you care about your home and the presentation that it makes, what do you do when guests come? Man, you clean things up so that place sparkles. Well, in a far greater sense, you know, we, we pursue sanctification. We, we confess and repent of our sins in order to, to make our lives sparkle for that time when we will see Christ face to face. And all of that in response to an inner work of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us to both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Beloved, it is, it is the greatest and most noble thing in the world to be a true Christian. We belong to God's family. We will see Christ face to face. And you know what? In the meantime, we can overcome a hostile world until then as we fix our eyes on the hope that is to come, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Gracious God, what can we say? You have been a God of all things to us. To know Christ and his resurrection is the highest and supreme desire of our hearts. We pray that you would magnify your grace, help expand our minds so that we could understand these things better, and expand your work in us that we might better we might better live in light of the reality of it all. And Father, we pray for those that are in this room that do not know Christ. Oh, we pray for your grace and mercy on them. Father, you were merciful to us. You were, you were gracious to us. And surely, oh God, you haven't exhausted your mercy. Surely you haven't, you haven't run out of grace And so we ask you to be gracious and merciful to those maybe young people that are in our audience that that do not know you. Be gracious to them. Send your spirit upon them to grant them new life, repentance, and faith that they might join the rest of us who know Christ in giving thanks and glory to you for your grace, for this great salvation, and for the privilege of one day seeing Christ face to face. 
In the name of our blessed Lord, we pray. Amen.